0: Senator Lincoln Huff has had an unusual trajectory in Missouri state politics. After being elected in 2010 to the Missouri House, Huff left state government for county government and then returned as a member of the Missouri Senate earlier this year. The Springfield Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the special session in Jefferson City this week and what's ahead for the legislature in 2020. Let's hit the music. Is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City today is our State House reporter.
1: Jacqueline Driscoll.
0: And our special guest, the senator for Missouri's 30th District.
2: Senator Lincoln Huff. Jason, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today. As I said before we press record, you are the first senator from the 30th District ever to appear on Politically Speaking, so I'm very excited for this. Um, I I was actually keeping a running checklist of the numbered senators who we need to, to get through, and I think we only have like five or six left, so... We are well.
2: I'm yeah. I'm I'm happy to be here. It's a little surprising that uh, you know that Springfield has not been on the show before, but uh, hopefully this won't be surprisingly underwhelming.
0: No, it's just going to be the greatest podcast in the history of the world. Um, <laughs> now that I've hyped everything up to a unbearable proportion. Tell us a little bit about like, the ba- what are the boundaries of your district. I know it includes a lot of Springfield, but I yeah. would also assume it includes other parts of Green as well. So,
2: I mean, not as much as you would think, actually. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I always, I, I describe it to people as essentially the city limits of Springfield. It goes out into the county on just, just a couple of very small portions, kind of in the northeastern section, uh, and then southwest. But primarily it is, I mean, I, I always say I represent the city of Springfield.
0: Tell us a little bit about like your background and what you were doing before you got involved in state politics, because you have kind of an unusual trajectory of where you got elected to the House, you went to county government, and then you came back to state politics. And I I want to know before we talk about that, like what got you interested in politics in the first place?
2: So actually, you can, uh, I mean, this kind of goes back to, uh, you know, the way I was raised. I mean, both my parents always said, you know, if you can get involved in your community, if you can serve in some sort of... Uh, you know, they never really said it but It but was kind of the undertone of like a charitable capacity or a, a public servant uh, mentality. So I got involved with my local like Farm Bureau groups. I got involved with uh, our local chamber group. And this was at a fairly young age. I think I served on a, a couple of our Springfield Chamber uh, boards. I mean, maybe whenever I was, you know, in my early 20s. And then, uh, you know, obviously the term limits that we have in Missouri, uh, then representative Bob Dixon was term limited out of the house. And I had worked with him on a couple of uh, little small issues in Springfield and uh, maybe served on a task force with him or something that our Springfield chamber had put together. And he actually came to me and said, have you ever thought about running for public office? And I think I was 24 or 25 at the time. And I kind of laughed and I was like no, I've, you know, I I raise cattle. I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I don't really know what I have to offer. But uh, he said, well, you're, you know, you're involved in the community, you know, a lot of people, and you seem to be kind of just sort of a even keel kind of personality. So maybe you ought to think about running.
0: And did you run in 2010 or 2012?
2: So when I ran for the state house, it was in 2010, and then came into the house in 11. But prior to that, I actually ran unsuccessfully against Uh, a woman that has become a very good friend, and her family's become good friends. If you remember the Senator Roseanne Bentley? Yes. She was actually an associate commissioner in Greene County, uh, and the county was going through some land use planning and and kind of uh, revamping a lot of their planning and zoning. And uh, and I actually, you know, Roseanne and I sat down and talked, and uh, I said, you know, I'm thinking about running for associate commissioner, and you know she was the associate commissioner at the time, and it was kind of one of these funny, you know, cups of coffee you have with someone. And she said, "Well, you can run if you want, but I'm going to run too." And I said, "Okay." And she won, and she, like I said, she's she's been a friend ever since. And uh, her and John have been, you know, great people in the community. She's got a she's got a wonderful tenure as a senator, and then uh, continued it on as as a commissioner back in. Green County for a while.
0: And, and you were elected to the Green County Commission in 2016 or 2014? Correct. Okay, 2016. No, 16. So you right. basically forewent for or foregone? Is it forewent? Foregone? I don't it know. It is
1: forewent. Sometimes it's foregone, but you're looking for forewent. Forewent,
0: a uh, last term in the House to go to county That's government. Which right. Which That's right. I, I, when I was doing my research on this, I mean, I, I'm not a huge expert on Springfield local politics, but I do pay attention a little bit. And your tenure was pretty eventful because you were, like, right in the middle of this controversy over whether to bring in the state auditor.
2: We had a couple of big conversations going on at the same time, Jason. And this is one of these things that, you know, it it keeps me involved and it keeps me, uh, I think, not only grounded but passionate about what we do here in Jeff City and what, what everyone, you know, that serves back at home is also doing. And we're trying to solve problems. So a couple of things that were going on in Greene County at the time, we, like a lot of counties, have an overcrowded jail. We've got a county jail that is designed for 600 uh, inmates and routinely houses almost 700. Uh, while I was a county commissioner, the decision was made to add uh, kind of a, a new idea, these trailer jails. Uh, and so we, we put up fencing around a parking lot and they moved semi-trailers in. They bolt these things together. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but essentially that's what it is. And we had another hundred and eight, I believe, beds in that facility, and then we're still uh, we're still housing inmates in other counties. And this is one of those things that like it's it's not a sustainable model. You can't, in my opinion, you can't just keep locking people up and locking people up. These are individuals and in our and our you know county sheriff used to always say he runs the largest mental health institution in the county because so many of these individuals that are locked up have some sort of mental illness or substance abuse issue that they're being treated for. In my opinion, what we've got to do is be – we've got to do a better job of treating the actual symptom that is landing these individuals in these facilities because we can't just – we can't continue to just build larger facilities. And so another one of the things that was going on at the county at that time was uh, we, as a county commission – I was in the minority of this opinion, but voted to place a sales tax on the ballot to build a larger jail, which to me just isn't the answer. Just building a bigger box to put people in, I think you've got to treat these individuals. And so we had we had that going on. We had the conversation that ultimately ended up with uh, Bob Dixon, who's now the presiding commissioner, whenever he came back to the county and I was still there. There was kind of this little overlap period between when I resigned as an associate commissioner and then became senator and he came down from the senate and was the presiding commissioner we had about a two-week overlap and so in that time we actually voted as a county commission to uh, allow the auditor to come in and and take a look at a few things that uh, hopefully i think as stewards of taxpayer dollars we always want to be making sure that we're doing the best that we possibly can and having having another set of eyes on those books is never a bad thing
0: so why did you decide to run for the Senate, and what have been your impressions so far uh, of being in the General Assembly's upper chamber?
2: So I would say that uh, the, probably the single biggest factor for me is that I always want to be in the best place to serve the community that I live in. And when Senator Dixon was termed out of the Senate, um, I enjoyed my time in the House Uh, And I I liked my time whenever I was at Greene County. But the the level of impact that oftentimes I feel like you can have at the state level can be more beneficial to the folks that you're that you're representing back at home. And and I still keep in touch with, uh, you know, the folks at the county and talk to them fairly often. But uh, I've got a platform up here to be an advocate for not just Springfield, but southwest Missouri. And and that was one of the major major factors in me deciding to run.
1: I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the special session. That's why lawmakers are in town this week, as well as the veto session, but special session first. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, Governor Mike Parson, his decision to call legislators back to deal with this car sales tax technicality?
2: Well, and I think, I think, Jacqueline, I think you probably framed that exactly right. It It is essentially a technicality. Uh This had been interpreted for years and years that individuals can trade in multiple vehicles at at the time that they're purchasing a new uh new vehicle and apply that towards you know the would be sales tax associated with the new vehicle. Um, special sessions, in my opinion, should be utilized when you have something that can be fairly quickly handled. You don't want this to drag on for weeks and weeks when we're going to be back here in January. Uh, for our regular session. So this is a this is a fairly simple, simple straightforward, I would say easy to understand uh, fix. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, what we're really talking about here is we're talking about the individuals that it affects on the sales tax, obviously, of buying a new vehicle. But then it, we're talking about the effect on the small businesses around the state that own these car dealerships. And, you know, it could be that individuals that may be ready to trade in a couple or 3 vehicles and buy something new hold off or don't do it based on this new supreme court interpretation. So in my opinion again, I think this is something that, you know, we can probably handle in a couple of days and and it's kind of a win-win for the small businesses that are the car dealerships and the individuals that are buying.
1: Is this an issue that your constituents have reached out to you about?
2: Yeah, our office has received, you know, a few interactions from folks back at home. But, uh, you know, by and large, this is something my understanding, most most folks that would utilize, you know, kind of a multiple vehicle inter- transaction on the purchase of a new one, uh, they make those decisions later on in the year as they're kind of looking at maybe some of their tax liability and whether they need to you know upgrade something
1: we've heard from several Democrats uh, including the legislative black caucus that they want other items placed on this agenda if lawmakers are coming back they want to address uh, things like gun violence or uh, drop in the Medicaid rolls what's your opinion on that so
2: I think that that kind of goes back to you know sort of my previous answer which was my opinion special sessions should be utilized for fairly finite easy-to-understand issues that don't require weeks, if not a month, of the legislature's time. We'll be back here in January, uh, and I hope very seriously that uh, we'll consider and we'll give some deliberate uh, conversation to those issues. I don't think a special session is maybe the right format for that.
1: I want to address those issues specifically um, when lawmakers do come back in January. Um, what types of things m- might you um, anticipate seeing in terms of gun violence um, you know, Governor Parson had had sat down with the Legislative Black Caucus. They emerged saying that Governor Parson agreed with stricter background checks, but he wasn't sure that his sway, he could sway many other Republicans to go for it. But this is obviously an issue that several people are worried about throughout the state. So how do we address that? Well, and it's
2: not, you know, this is, this is not an issue that is uh, for one specific area of the state or not. I mean, we had... We had in the city of Springfield an issue not too many weeks ago, where an individual walked into a Walmart with body armor on and uh, a rifle that most people would consider uh, insightful of public panic. And you can't. I'm sorry, but that's just not that's not okay in in the in the world that we live in today. And I think. Uh, our prosecutor in Greene County, uh, and I won't get his quote exactly right, but said something to the effect of your Second Amendment right doesn't give you the right to incite panic in the public. OK, and I think Dan Patterson's exactly right. So I would hope that uh, when we come back in January, there can be some conversations about uh, maybe it's maybe it is background checks uh, that are a little more strict. Uh,
1: the Medicaid rolls. Um Actually, I spoke with someone from the Springfield area. Her son had uh, Duchenne has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, it's it's a fatal diagnosis, but he goes to treatment to kind of preserve his quality of life. And they were removed from Medicaid. Um, and She's still trying to get her son back on. There are these issues we're hearing uh, throughout the state. So how will you address this when you come back in January?
2: I would hope, and this this example being an individual from Springfield, I I would hope that an individual like that would reach out to my office. Uh, Because I can tell you, uh, we have not received the calls or the emails saying this is an issue and this is something I've been working on or I've always had these Medicaid benefits, and then all of a sudden I, I now don't or my son doesn't or my family doesn't or something like that. So what I always tell people is, like, I am, and my office is the conduit through these state agencies oftentimes for individuals. I appreciate people wanting to handle things on their own. If if we can be of service, if you are due these eligible uh, Medicaid services. We we will help you uh, if it's some clerical issue that's come up. I can tell you, though, that we just haven't had, I have not had a bunch of calls to the office saying these are these are real world problems and this happened to my family or my son. And so I would always just implore people if, if it has happened to them, call us and let me see what we can do.
0: We'll be back right after this message with Senator Lincoln Hough. And we're back with Senator Lincoln Huff of Springfield. You are the vice chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, which is probably one of the most important committees in the legislature because it helps write the state budget. Um, before we talk about some specific aspects of it, I, I want to get your sense of what the lay of the land is for the for the, the budgetary process. I know we're we're not quite at the point where 2021 is starting, but as somebody who looks at this pretty intricately if you had to tell an ordinary person like what is the state of the Missouri budget what would you tell them
2: so right now uh, i mean there are there are some good indicators moving forward i mean our our general revenue growth in the first few months uh, has been good the last number i saw you know and and they fluctuate daily jason but uh about 10.4% is what we were up now again these go up and down and uh, and there's there's a lot of factors, but um, I have regular calls with our appropriations team here in the Senate, and a lot of these uh, individuals have been doing this for a long time. And as of right now, uh, the sentiment is that things look okay. We're not looking at some doomsday scenario all of a sudden. Uh, Things look okay moving forward into 2021.
0: One of the things that I think is looming over the Missouri budget process is the prospect of Medicaid expansion. There was a group that came forward, I believe last week, seeking to put an initiative on the 2020 ballot to expand Medicaid. It has a lot of powerful interest groups that will probably provide the money needed to gather the appropriate amount of signatures and run a campaign. I'm interested to hear not only your thoughts about the prospect of Medicaid expansion, but also in your view, what the impact on the budget would be. Because from talking with a lot of Republicans over the year, their biggest reason why they have not embraced the concept of Medicaid expansion under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act is the fear that even if 90% is coming from the federal government, coming up with the 10% from the state could be challenging.
2: Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'll throw a couple of quick numbers at you. The fiscal note that, uh, that I've seen that, you know, we would have to come up with based on how this is expanded, uh, can roughly be in that $200 million range. And, uh, you know, when, when you have a $30 billion budget, it, it would sound like $200 million is something that we could, we could come up with, right? Well, what you're really talking about there is you're talking about what are you going to cut? Because we do have just, just I, I call it kind of the organic growth within these uh, within these systems every year. And if we had then on top of the usual 80 to to $100 million that these programs end up costing us annually in addition to whatever it was last year, you tack another $200 million onto that. I don't know, quite frankly, I don't know where you come up with that money. Um, you know, some of the hardest conversations I've had is even whenever I was in the House and serving on the budget committee uh you know parents coming in and talking to about talking to you about how their kids used to have uh an individual that would come to their house before they were ready for school and they did a parents as teachers program and it was one of the things that i think it was the year before i got into the house or maybe the first year i was in that that parents as teachers program was i don't think it was totally cut out of the budget but it was cut way back and those are things that have real impact on families all across the state and so when you talk about perhaps 200 million dollars that we need to come up with uh i don't know where you come up with it and you know this last year was the first year that we put um general revenue into our transportation spending and uh that's not a long-term solution to our infrastructure problems in this state that's a that's a band-aid that'll help us build a lot of bridges but um Moving forward in the future, the thing that's scariest for me is uh, those conversations that you have to have with people that these programs affect, and you have to say either that program is no longer in existence, or perhaps it's it's cut way back, and we just don't have the we don't have the bandwidth in this budget to absorb what could be a two hundred million dollar. Uh, expansion of that program.
0: It seems like this effort from from the proponents of Medicaid expansion, as I mentioned in the in the question, it seems like it, it is going to have a lot of heft behind it. If you had to guess, like, do you think that this ends up passing? And if so, like, are the, the Republicans that are on the appropriations committee preparing like well ahead of time about how we, how to deal with what you just talked about, of finding the necessary money?
2: Well, the, the conversation has obviously been been talked about all through last year, through the interim on, on our side, and I can't speak for the House and their uh, budget process and where where they are. We've had ongoing discussions about where this money would come from if ultimately it did, it did pass. And we don't know, you know, like I said, I'm using a $200 million number. We don't really know what the number is. That, and that's, you know, the unknowns are always the scariest things whenever you're trying to trying to budget for something essentially a little over a year out. And, uh, I mean, my biggest concern, again, is, you know, we've got a school uh, transportation funding uh, formula that's $200 million underfunded. We've got districts that make decisions about who they can bus and who they can't based on the dollars that they have allocated. and And that, again, can put a hardship on a family who maybe lives – a mile and a half or two miles, but, you know, in their district, your child can't be bused unless it's three and a half miles to the school. And so then you're putting that back on the parents and, you know, and they're trying to go to work and they're trying to make ends meet. And uh, just all of these things have implications and they're not, the thing I always want people to remember is the decisions that we make up here in the Capitol aren't things that have no effect on your everyday life. The budget decisions that we make and the programs that we fund or, or, ultimately can't fund have real impacts. And so the thing that I always try to weigh out is what can we do that is the most beneficial for individuals all across the state and how do we get that done?
1: Playing devil's advocate with that, um, the expanding Medicaid, sick people are expensive. And if they don't meet the thresholds um, for Medicaid in Missouri You know, oftentimes they go into the emergency room and they can't be denied treatment. And then the state has to pick up that tab. So wouldn't it in the long run essentially be beneficial to expand the program to cover more people?
2: As long as we can pay for it. So here's the thing. We can't, in my opinion, you can't expand a program and then just say, tell you what, hospitals, we're just going to cut the amount that we reimburse you. Because have you really done any good? Because then what we're going to have is we're going to have rural hospitals that close. And then we're going to have the same individuals that you're talking about, these, I mean, sick individuals that need this treatment. But now, now we've placed this burden of travel hardship on them if they have, I mean, if their rural hospital has closed because our reimbursements are so low that the hospitals make a decision and say, we just can't operate in this capacity anymore.
1: Are rural hospitals closing now?
2: Some are. Some have. And those are decisions, again, that, that those hospital systems are making based on federal and state reimbursements.
0: Well, I want to be a little bit more open-ended about the 2020 session. We talked about Medicaid expansion. What are some other issues that the legislature did not tackle this year that you foresee coming up in 2020?
2: Well, one of the things that I think I thought, you know, in in our chamber, I thought we were fairly close on, uh, and it affects municipalities all across the state, the Wayfair decision and this online kind of leveling of the playing field. I mean, we've all heard, you know, the, the brick and mortar argument that, they're there. They're paying property taxes. They're and before
0: you continue, activities. Senator, the sure. Wayfair decision is kind of shorthand that a lot of politicians use to talk about online sales taxes. Right. And I know you're right. about to explain that now, but I, I, I want to make sure for people that don't understand that that's what you're talking about. But so continue. the funny
2: thing about the Senate is that, you know, even though we use the shorthand approach and just say the Wayfair legislation, it'll take us days to talk through it. <laughs> right. Like we, maybe we would be better off just explaining exactly what that was right off the bat. But, yeah, we're talking about online sales tax. We're talking about um, that sales that occur uh, online all over the country then are charged the sales tax applicable to the area that the item was purchased from. So you're in, you know, you're in Chillicothe and you buy something and you're paying the applicable sales tax on that item for your municipality. Uh, Rough numbers on that that we have. And, again, these are kind of – I mean, these are our our best guesses – about $90 million that would be distributed to municipalities all across the state and somewhere between 150 to $250 million that could be collected for the state. So when we go back and we start talking about Medicaid expansion and we talk about where do we come up with that money, there are revenue streams that could help offset something like that if that item was placed on the ballot and ultimately, ultimately happened.
1: How do you think the upcoming election could affect the legislature's ability to pretty much get anything done?
2: Yeah, so that's uh, – it was always – when I was in the House, Spent, like I said, I spent six years in the House. And when you're in the House, every other year is an election year. Now, it's the same thing in the Senate. Only half of us are up every year and then, you know, two years later the other half. So my hope would be that even though these elections are coming in August and November of 2020, that does not preclude us from tackling some of the hard issues. I, I mean, I've, I will always believe that if we in these bodies – do what we believe is best for the citizens, you will either be rewarded or you'll be removed from office for those decisions. And that's, and that's fine because in my opinion, that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't be making any decisions or quite frankly, not making decisions based on an election coming up.
0: You were the handler of what I like to shorthandedly call like economic and workforce development legislation. That was probably the biggest accomplishment of the 2019 session. Um, and it was not an easy uh, thing to get across the finish line. I think – how many hours of a filibuster was it? Was it like 36 or oh, 48? Oh,
2: I, I think you're being generous. I think you're being generous. I think it was like 27 yeah. something like that. But, I mean, it was – yeah, it was. It, it took a little bit of work.
0: So uh, there were a lot of different aspects of that bill that got passed. And we've talked about a lot of those on another show with Representative Derek Grier. So, my question is As somebody who clearly is interested in the economic development and workforce development space, what do you foresee in 2020 coming down the pike uh, as far as that policy realm? Because uh, if there's anything that I've heard politicians on both sides of the aisle say that they want in Missouri, it's economic development and more jobs everywhere. And in a place like uh, Springfield in Southwest Missouri, I'm sure, even though that that area has seen some job growth over the last couple of decades, they would want to see even more. So I'd be I'd be interested to hear what's on the horizon on that on that issue.
2: So my take on that is that there was that was that was one of the most uh, comprehensive economic development and workforce packages that was that was passed, obviously last year, but uh, in the last several years in the state. And what it did is it took. It took a lot of ideas from a lot of different people. Uh, you know, I happen to be the handler of, uh, of the Senate bill that this all got kind of wrapped up in towards the end of session. But ultimately, that was a culmination of a whole lot of work by a lot of other individuals and a lot of folks that, you know, don't actually vote in either the House or the Senate. I mean, these are these are uh, the economic developers from around the state that travel all over this country and they find things that work and they try to improve on those programs uh, specifically, the fast track program. Uh, I think when the governor rolled that idea out, he wanted twenty or twenty-two million dollars in it. Uh, ultimately, we ended up putting ten million dollars in it. But what that is is that is a that's a that's a program that will allow individuals to go back to primarily two-year institutions, two-year colleges, your tech schools, and get varying certificates that then increase their capacity in the workforce. Okay, these are individuals that might be making you know 24 25 $28,000 and if they can go and they can earn a certificate at a at a two-year institution that is generally very close to their house or their home maybe then they come out of that program and they're making 35 or $40,000 and and then someone else is backfilling those jobs that they left to get into this uh, this next step there are tools like that that have real world impacts for individuals Right at home, and and this isn't something that has never been tried. I think this was actually kind of uh, modeled after a Tennessee program.
0: I'll, I'll just give you a couple of quick hits about things that didn't get passed in in twenty nineteen. Low income housing tax credits was something that the Senate passed very early, but kind of fell into. A lack of compromise near the end. Do you think that that issue comes back to the forefront next year? And do you think that the legislature can actually overhaul that program? So
2: I don't know if it comes to the forefront. I think it's something that uh, needs to be dealt with. I mean, we yeah we spent some time in the Senate. We got that into what I thought was a pretty good compromise position that allowed that program to open back up, allow those tax credits to be utilized by individuals. Because really, what you're talking about there again is you're talking about um, you're talking about housing for individuals that oftentimes does not occur without a little bit of buy-in from the state. And so the folks that you ask to go out and to build these houses for people can't really cash flow it without a little bit of help from the state. And so, uh, like I said, the way we rolled it out of the Senate, I thought was uh, a good program. Like I said, does it come to the, is it on the forefront? I don't know about that, Jason, but uh, it's something that is, again, it's impactful to people back at home.
0: And this, this is a random question, but with medical marijuana, it's just been legalized th- through the ballot. Um, there were some complaints from some legislators that I heard that the legislature should have dealt with that issue rather than have a ballot initiative go forward. So now that that's settled and now that Illinois has legalized recreational marijuana and there are other states, I think, around the Midwest that are going to be legalizing it, Maybe this isn't a next year thing, but has there been any discussions about whether the legislature may take up that issue, or is that just too controversial to get any consensus on at this point?
2: Well, I don't know that uh, that it's too controversial. I think what you have is you've got a, a kind of a fledgling pro- program that was uh, that was approved by voters. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see, you know, our our health department roll that out, get that up and running, see how it works before we talk about expanding that into something else.
0: Okay, Senator, this is going to be the hardest question of all, so <laughs> be, be ready for this. I would like you to point to two things in the 30th Senatorial District, or maybe even three places, where you would recommend somebody go to if they've never been there before. And an, I've, I've said this in other shows. This is a dicey question because you may be offending a lot yeah, of great no, places. You're going
2: you're to offend everybody except the three. Yeah, right? But, uh,
0: but, so, but, but I, I'm going to give you this opportunity to show off your district, so to speak.
2: All right. So there is uh, there is the number one attraction in the entire United States that is the Wonders of Wildlife Museum that's on the Bass Pro campus uh, right next door to Bass Pro Shops. It is, it is a world-class facility that uh, if you've never been, it is 100% worth the trip. And if you're going and then you're obviously going to stay overnight, uh, probably the best, the best hotel that I've seen in all of Springfield is the Vandevort, which is on, uh, Walnut Street downtown. Uh, and it is a, it's a beautifully redone historic building in our downtown. And then after the, after the wonders of wildlife, maybe when you're headed back towards and you're, you know, taking an Uber, Stop by Mother's Brewing Company because they've got a tasting room, and they actually work with local farmers uh, and and kind of have sort of a full circle brewing cycle that that allows local farmers to utilize grain that is used in their brewing process to feed cattle. Uh, It's just a really good operation. Jeff Schrag's a heck of a guy and kind of a serial entrepreneur. And uh, if if I was going to do three things, you can kind of package that into a day, and and you'd have a great time in Springfield.
0: And here's a, the biggest question of all: Would you recommend Springfield Springfield style cashew chicken to people? If absolutely,
1: they... but you got to go to Leon's.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's... I don't know what
1: any of that means.
0: Well, it's no, a... we're speaking
1: Missouri to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It, it it is a i i have been to springfield multiple times and that is a is a delicacy I would hope. yeah i have it is even it though is. even though i've like given springfield short shrift when it comes to senators like i have actually been there and and that is one of the delicacies that i would highly recommend as as someone who's never gone there. Well, Jason, before. there's
2: an opportunity for you to make up, you know, the the senators uh, kind of being slided over the years and we just kind of do this as almost, you know, kind of a bi-weekly podcast.
0: Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> just you could be you could be the fifth, you could be the fifth or sixth co-host on the show. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna stop here and end the show. All Thank right. you so much, Senator, well, for Jason, coming my on. Pleasure. For all of our pleasure. stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Jacqueline on Twitter at
1: Driscoll NPR.
0: How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? And how would you recommend people get in touch with your office?
1: Sure.
2: Well, obviously, the office is online. You can look up, look up uh, our office through the Missouri Senate website. But you can also follow me on Twitter, just Lincoln Huff, at Lincoln Huff.
0: Thank you very much. Until next time, so long.